Hi there, you're listening to What Are You Going To Do With That? The podcast of the Minerva Center for the Rule of Law Under Extreme Conditions at the University of Haifa. My name is Dani, I'm a PhD candidate, and in this episode, we've got another very interesting guest who's been all over Europe for his research. Before I introduce him, I'd like to invite you to check, like, and share our podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. There, you'll find more information about our guests and their research, and you can give us comments or ask questions. You can find us by searching for what to do with that, or with the at what to do with that, where the two is spelled with the number two. And while you're at it, don't forget to hit that share button. All right, let me introduce you to Emre Tolkut. Emre has a bachelor degree in law from Ankara University in Turkey and an LLM degree in public international law from the University of Kent in the UK. His thesis examined the remedial secession doctrine and international law in light of the Kosovo and Quebec cases. Emre worked as a research assistant in the public international law department at Turgut Özal University Law School in Ankara, where he was responsible for teaching seminars to bachelor students and also assisted with the preparation and teaching of various mandatory and elective courses in the fields of public international law, international human rights law, and international criminal law. He also served as an editorial assistant of the Turkish Journal of Legal Studies, which is a national peer-reviewed journal. Emre is now a doctoral researcher at Ghent University in Belgium. I'm pronouncing it the Flemish way. Yeah, <laughs> at the yeah fac- <laughs> that. At the Faculty of Law and Criminology and the Department of European, Public and International Law. He was a Swedish Institute Visiting Fellow at Uppsala University in 2018 and is currently a DAAD Fellow at the Hertie School in Germany. His PhD research concerns the compatibility of the Turkish derogation measures adopted in the aftermath of the attempted military coup in 2016 with international human rights law and uses the Turkish case as a springboard to critically address the fallacies of the contemporary derogation regime. Emmer's research has been funded by the Swedish Institute, the Raoul Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law, also in Sweden, Ghent University, the DAAD, and also by the Minerva Center here in Haifa. His research covers a variety of fields within the domain of public international law and international human rights law, including derogation from human rights, state of emergency, human rights in the fight against terrorism, self-determination, and remedial secession doctrine. His work has been published in journals such as Security and Human Rights, and he's written a chapter in the book Dueling for Supremacy, International Law versus National Fundamental Principles by Cambridge University Press. So, welcome, Emre. I'm very glad to have you here on our show today. Thank you. Thank you, Danny. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. I already mentioned that the Minerva Center has helped financing your research, but I would like you to explain how and when you got to us. In fact, the first time that I you know, got in touch with Minerva Center was back in 2018 when I you know, attended this workshop young researchers workshop in 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 minerva and uh, at that workshop i presented one of my research which was eventually published by security and human rights which is a good journal and for that article i received a funding from the minerva center 
It was basically support for an ongoing research. But as I said, that article was in part, you know, financially supported by the Minerva Central. So that's got sounds good that you also got a publication out of it. Yes, yes. You know, I'm also, you know, my, my PhD dissertation, my doctoral dissertation will take the form of a compilation of published articles. So these days I am finalizing my PhD and I have seven chapters and at least half of them are already published. And the four of them are already published and three of them uh, have been submitted. So uh, I am, you know, hoping to defend my PhD in September, October this year. Let's cheer to that. I brought my regular drink with me, the Disarono. There you go. Now I can pour myself some. And what are you having right now? I am having a Turkish traditional tea. Ooh, that sounds good. Is it still hot? It is hot. It is hot. Yeah. Do you drink it with a lot of sugar? Uh, no, no sugar. No sugar. None at all. Oh, that must be bitter. No. I'm definitely a sweet tooth. <laughs> <laughs> all right, there you go. Cheers to the publications Cheers. and the last ones to go. Cheers. Thank you. Let's get started with a few short questions. My first one is, what's different about your morning routine in Berlin? Than the routine that you had in Sweden or Belgium, or do you stick very much to the same thing every day? Well, uh, pretty much I stick to the you know same routine. I have a very lazy you know uh, morning. I get up very late because I'm a night person. I uh, you know tend to you know work at night, uh, and most productive hours for me is between you know 1 a.m. to 4 a.m. So right. I usually go to bed around, you know, 5 a.m. and I get up very late. Right. With a little bit of Turkish tea. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and coffee. Coffee. Also ca- caffeine. Yeah. Also good. Well, I, I enjoy drinking tea, you know, throughout the day. But in order to, you know, wake myself up, it is, you know, the coffee is the best medicine, I guess. I've heard that a lot. <laughs> All right. And then secondly, what is your most used emoji, for example, on WhatsApp? emoji i'm using these memojis recently i don't know if you're familiar with them no memoji is you know uh, some sort of a customized emoji where all your your picture is on it but uh, you know kind of comical way okay and then it, it those those memojis you know uh, you can find you know smiling memojis you know uh, those emojis that send you know hearts Uh, I'm using emojis most of. So of yourself yes. with these usual yes. emojis that we know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. That's very nice. Maybe you should send one to me to get an idea of what it looks like. I will. I will. All right. And then, do you remember what's the first concert you've ever attended? The first concert. I think it was a public concert when I was at the age of 10. Okay. You know, my uh, teachers, I think, took me there. It was a it was a concert by a very local group that sang Turkish songs, Turkish traditional songs. But uh, that is the only memory. So I don't remember what which songs they they sang that day. <laughs> Sounds nice though. So you went with the class? Yes, whole class. Nice. It was it was kind of a school event. So I remember I was you know I I really enjoyed myself during that that concert. Sounds like a good memory. Yeah. All right, and what energizes you or gives you a boost? Boost during the day or or generally? Maybe like, more in general, like what keeps you motivated and going? Like 
what makes you excited? <laughs> okay. Like, okay, I am I am really excited these days because Turkish Super League, uh, soccer league is about to, you know kick off. Okay. I'm a, you know uh, a huge football fan, soccer fan. And I religiously, you know, watch football games and then follow transfer news. Keep myself updated about the, you know, worldwide football. And my favorite team is Trabzonspor in Turkey. And they uh, they have a game. Uh, I think it's it's tomorrow on Friday. So it, I mean, I mean, it gives me, you know, somehow, you know, I'm I'm, I'm feeling refreshed. Are you going to a pub to watch it, or are you inviting some friends no, over? No, I'm, 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 I'm going to watch it at home, you know. All right. And then, what do you always bring with you when you move to a different place? Hmm. Can I say my wife? <laughs> oh, yes, that's a good one. <laughs> it's very important. <laughs> Better not leave her behind. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. What? I think it, it should be, you know, my, my MacBook, because, I mean, it has been the, the you know, true friend for me for the past couple of years. All right. Okay, so now I got to know you a little bit better, I feel. <laughs> we can okay. dig in a little bit more. As I've mentioned in my introduction about you, you've started your studies in Turkey, um, which is where mm -hmm. you're from, and you've also worked there in research and as an editorial assistant, and then you made your way to an LLM in the UK. So I was wondering why you chose the UK and how you got there. You know, when I was studying uh, law uh, at Ankara University, I did my LLB, Bachelor in Law there, I was always sure that, you know, I wanted to go abroad to, you know, uh, to further my academic studies. Because, uh, I mean, since my childhood, I had only one dream, study law and try to become an, an academic or a professor in law. Uh, and I knew that, you know, studying abroad would broaden my knowledge uh, in international, public international human rights, so quite generally. And in UK especially, I, back then I was sure that it was the best option for me to study an LLM. All right. So it was on your mind for a long time already and then the UK was just the best option for you. Yes. Yes, exactly. But then what about the funding? I understand that, for example, in Germany, it's quite easier to get funding or the studies are cheaper. In the UK, it's it's quite expensive. So how did you get around? It, it is, it is, it is. So I had, in fact, two partial fundings. Um, when I was finishing my bachelor, I applied to many schools. I get accepted from, you know, my first targets. But eventually I decided to, you know, go to Kent University because I had a partial funding there. And I also had a second partial funding from Turkey and combining them both, I did pretty okay, I guess. Uh, and I also, for a few months, I had to take a side job, a mini job that greatly helped me to, you know, uh, cover the remaining tuition fee. What kind of job was that? It was a, it was a, it was a job at a local center where I taught Turkish to young children. Okay, so that helped you. Yeah. To get around. That, that helped me a lot, yeah. Very good. And then your MA thesis really focused on the cases of Kosovo and Quebec, while your PhD mm -hmm. dissertation now is more on Turkey in the aftermath of 2016's attempted military coup. So how come you switch topics, or do you think they're actually very similar? During my LLM years, uh, I was always motivated 
by wanting that I wanted my research to have some sort of a societal relevance. And my LLM thesis look at the question of the remedial cessation doctrine, which is part of the external self-determination in, in public international law. And in fact, when I first applied for PhD program in Ghent, my original PhD dissertation was taking a look at the Kurdish self-determination in Turkey. So I was hoping to integrate my LLM thesis into my PhD proposal. And then by nature, this uh, self-determination right is, is, you know, inherently political. And, and back in 2016, I saw that, you know, the, the Kurdish self-determination in Turkey hit a, hit a deadlock, basically. So uh, late 2016, we eventually decided to shift the focus from self-determination to uh, Turkish post-coup derogation measures. All right. Thank you for that. So you finished the LLM in the UK in 2015-16, around that time? So normally LLM programs is for one year in, in the UK. But after I submitted my LLM thesis, I went back to Turkey, started working as a research and teaching assistant at a private university in Turkey. And, and it took some time, some six months for me to actually get the degree. So I officially finished in 2015. And then you went straight into the PhD that was in Belgium. So how did you get to Belgium? So, as I said, my original topic was, you know, uh, dealing with the Kurdish self-determination. And, and my supervisor here at Ghent, uh, Professor Tom Reus, he has published a few pieces on the Kurdish self-determination, but from a different background, from use of force framework. And, and I got in touch with him, and he was very happy with the proposal. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, he accepted to supervise me, basically. And then we started, but as I said, you know, late 2016, uh, we eventually decided to, you know, change the topic a bit. All right, so you're doing that doctorate still at Ghent University in Belgium, but it seems you haven't actually spent that much time in Belgium because you've yes. also been visiting in Uppsala, Sweden, and you're now in yeah. Berlin, Germany. Yes. And I understand that you've also received funding from these places yeah. to be able to do all of those things. So maybe you can give us some tips or recommendations on how to land these grants or how to get to these places at all. Basically, I mean, at Ghent University, we're particularly encouraged to spend some time abroad in the furtherance of our PhD studies. And I spent two years in Ghent to, you know, spend some time abroad. And I applied for these fellowships. One was by the uh, Swedish Institute in, in Sweden. Uh, and I got that it's very, you know, uh, I'm a highly competitive grant, but I got it. And now I am working as a DAAD uh, fellow at uh, Hertz School Center for Fundamental Rights. But I mean, I basically spent uh, time to, you know, finalize my PhD within the framework of these fellowships. Right. So it was still part of your PhD. It's not like it was something completely different. It is. It is. These are not completely, you know, different research subjects. They are basically funding my PhD research. Actually, we have something in common then, because my research here in Israel, but about Germany and the Netherlands, is funded by the DAAD as well. Okay. <laughs> so I'm familiar with the system. Yeah. So what are you doing during these, these fellowships abroad? Are you also there to teach or to assist other research projects? Or is it really only focusing on your own PhD? 
I mean, formally, it is only on my PhD, but, uh, you know, uh, these are residential fellowships. So basically, I have I had to be there. For example, in Sweden, I had to live in Sweden. That is one of the, you know, formal requirements of the fellowship. And uh, when you're there, most often are invited to do some side things like teaching. And and, and uh, I did some teaching in, in, in uh, at Uppsala University. It was, uh, you know, part of a module, part of a course, LLM course that focused on the human rights and democracy in Turkey. And I taught there six, six weeks or seven weeks. I don't remember now. Uh, and I also, I used to, you know, assist some professors in their research as well. So it sounds like during these, visiting these other universities, you really gain some extra skills. You do, you do. So do you think that's the most valuable part of going abroad? Okay, let, let, let me put it that way. Normally, if you're writing a PhD, that is, you know, the, the case is most often uh, is a monograph that you write as a PhD dissertation, right? But I didn't want to go, uh, I didn't want to choose that, but I wanted to have, a, you know, compilation of published articles in order to have impact, like immediate impact of my research. And then uh, when it comes to these fellowships, by uh, lodging application, you, 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 you improve your grant writing skills, for example. You improve your m- many other skills. And, and, and uh, also, you know, it, it's somehow, you know, helpful or, or refreshing time to, to stay abroad because it can give you, you know, new insights that you could incorporate in your PhD, in your research. So I'm regularly, in fact, asked by uh, a number of uh, international human rights organizations to give opinions on on Turkey's, you know, uh, fight against terrorism, Turkey's emergency rule. And I do also regularly write op-eds, give interviews to, you know, national and international media outlets. This is something I got from, you know, uh, my experience uh, as as visiting fellows at different universities and different contexts and different countries. So the most important thing for you and the reason that you're actually doing the research is to have that impact. Yes, exactly. That's great. So uh, I always wanted my research to have some sort of a societal relevance. And and also, you know, uh, I'm, I, I don't see myself in like 10, 20 years that where I hide in my ivory tower, uh, I think uh, civil society empowerment is is something you know quite important for us. So we all want to you know have or research to have uh, impact, immediate impact on society, society, societal factors. So then I want to ask you if the impact is a big factor uh, for the reason behind doing all of this, uh, which is sometimes also very mm-hmm. difficult is why you're doing it outside of Turkey. Okay. So, I mean, I, I mean, as I said, again, I, I will repeat it, but I always wanted my research to have some sort of a societal impact. And, and uh, that is, you know, uh, that is what I studied, right? Public international. I was hoping to, you know, take a look at Kurdish self-determination and then we, you know, shifted the question to Turkish derogation measures. Basically, what I do deals with uh, with human right, uh, the, the state of human rights in Turkey. And if uh, I was in Turkey, I wouldn't have done my research. I wouldn't have published articles, op-eds. 
because the, the political regime in Turkey is not that tolerant. So uh, whenever you write something, you're basically targeted as an academic. So we, I mean, in Turkey, uh, especially with the establishment of this presidential system, which is organized around you know vast powers of the president, Uh, the, the the new system eradicated all key key, uh, key checks and balances, and the freedoms, especially academic freedom, uh, that, that it, it's worst state. So I'm um, studying abroad uh, or settling down abroad eventually was the way to go for me. All right. Would you ever consider or have you thought of going back at some point? Well, if things get better in Turkey, yes. Because um, that is where I was born and raised. Uh, that is my, you know, country, basically. So uh, I would want to go back to Turkey. And that's what the impact is all about, right? To make the world a little bit of a better place so that you can go back to that. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, fingers crossed. Exactly. And it does look like you're having a lot of impact already with the op-eds and the blogs and the publications that you've already had. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm trying. What is it like to move around so often and to be emerged in a different culture and to be confronted with different languages? Do you make friends easily? Is your family supportive? Uh, yes, I'm, I'm living with my wife and she's very supportive of my academic journeys. And we, we do speak English at university when we're teaching and researching. And, and we don't have to you know, learn the local uh, or the national domestic language. And and at uh, at university, you know, we have I had especially you know a beautiful academic environment where everyone was so supportive. In uh, it was the case in Sweden, and it's now the case in in Berlin. But if I compare my experiences, I think we're uh, fitting in better in Berlin because there is a huge you know Turkish community. Uh, we can, you know, uh, eat delicious Turkish foods, kebabs. Uh, it wasn't that that easy in Sweden. Is it like back in Turkey, the food? The food is, yeah, and in some restaurants it's even better. Wow, okay. So you're in the second best place then. Oh, yes, yes. Great. Uh, you're also often away from your supervisor who is in Belgium. Yeah. What is that like? Uh, well, we have uh, monthly meetings, monthly Skype meetings. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's just working out, you know, fine for me. But uh, I have to say that he has been a great supervisor, not just, you know, to me, but to, you know, to other colleagues as well. And Prof. Tom Royce, I think he'll be one of the most established scholars in international law in like 10 years. He's, he's such a hard-working person. I bet, and he's probably he's probably got a lot of students to supervise, and they're spread all over the place because Belgium or Ghent University expects their students to go abroad. So you've already done the Zoom and the Skype experience before all of us started doing it due to the corona situation. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm quite experienced when it comes to having online meetings. In fact, I will have my final guidance committee meeting in, in, in June, So I was, you know, I just, you know, created a doodle. I mean, that is between us, but uh, I'm, I'm, and also, you know, since the lockdown, we have uh, everything online, every academic gatherings online on Zoom. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm quite experienced, yeah. 
do you think that the corona situation or lockdown and the measures that have been put in place also in Berlin and maybe different ones in Belgium where your supervisor is located have um, affected you a lot? Not, not, not really. So since uh, 15th March, I'm working home-based. I'm working from home. And my supervisor is also working from and everyone I know, you know at these universities are, are working from home. And in, in fact, in order to do research, we don't need many things. We need, you know, a computer and all these, you know, databases are, are working quite well. So we actually don't need, you know, hard books, like hard copy books in order to, you know, further our research. You don't have a lab or you don't need to go to an archive or anything like that. No, no, uh, no, no. It's just me and my computer and, and, and internet. All right, but at least you have your wife who's very supportive. <laughs> so it's not like it's just you. Yeah. All right. And that actually also leads us to the next question, which is what are your next plans? Now you're almost done with your PhD. And what are you going to do with that? <laughs> what am I going to do with, with that? I think I like to stay in academia if it's possible. And I want to do more research. So I am, in fact, these days I'm applying for postdoc positions. That is where I see myself in the next five years, three, five years, I guess. I'd like to do more research. All right. So you're going to apply for a postdoc. Is this going to stay in the same uh, topic and field or are you thinking about something else? I mean, I haven't given much thought about it, but... Uh, one easy option would be to, you know, incorporate my uh, PhD research into the impact of COVID, uh, you know, from a constitutional and human rights perspective. But I will, I will, I will see in the next, you know, uh, months. When will you finish exactly with your PhD, or what is the plan? So I am finalizing these days, and I will. The, I mean, all chapters of my PhD are completed, and I will try to draft uh, the introduction and conclusion by late July, uh, which would uh, you know, enable us to uh, schedule the public and private defenses in the course of September, early September, mid-October. Mid uh, I think by mid-October, I will, will become a doctor. All right, that would be very awesome. Fingers crossed. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And you worked hard enough for it, and long enough, I suppose. So staying in academia, that's the big plan. That's the best case scenario. But I hope it's okay if I ask a bit of a mean question, which is, what if you don't get it? Uh -huh. uh, okay. Well, I mean, I could make a very like radical decision if I don't land the postdoc uh, fellowship. Maybe I might consider opening up a restaurant because that is the... Uh, second dream job for me, uh, be become a chef. What kind of restaurant? Well, I in fact, you know, thought about the even the the you know the name of the restaurant. It'll be good food, good mood. Uh, I like that. Where I will, <laughs> where I will serve. I mean, it won't be a traditional Turkish restaurant, but some sort of a uh, eclectical where I do serve, you know, dishes that I like the most from, you know, world cuisine. And I, I don't have a, a, you know, favorite uh, chef, but I do follow the, the, the uh, way that Gordon Ramsay cooks, for example. Right. Uh, he, he's, he's a British chef. 
and 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 yeah maybe you know he will be like my mentor like virtual mentor and and uh, you know I, I may become a chef i may you know open up a restaurant and the third option would for me you know be, be you know outside the academy would be uh, try to become a football manager okay that could be i think there's a bigger chance in opening a restaurant than that necessarily right <laughs> Maybe, maybe I'll 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 see. I'll it's see. a passion, but it's only on number three, and maybe number one will really be it. Well, I I, I think I mean I have a publication record now, because that is one of the beauties uh, when you're writing a compilation of published articles because you have a you know a solid publication track, publication record, and that I mean that kind of a, a record is is quite you know helpful. If you want to, you know, if you want to land on a, you know, a postdoc fellowship, uh, I think it, it, it'll help. But but I'll see, I'll see, Danny. I don't. I I have plans, but I hope I hope they, you know, work out good in the end. All right. Well, I wish you the best of luck with that. But from what I've been Thank describing you. in this very long introduction of all the things that you've been doing so far. It seems like you're on the right track. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Thanks. Hi there. Following a poll on our social media accounts, also called What are you going to do with that? Our audience has selected a question that they had for Emre. If you'd like to ask a question to our next guests, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram to vote and comment. I am particularly happy about the chosen question that allows me to talk about food again. The question for Emre is, where, outside of Turkey of course, have you had the best Turkish food? And what is the best Turkish food? Uh, well, Denny, I am also happy that the food question got the most votes because I am really, really passionate about food. I like both to cook and to eat. I always explore new cuisines and try new recipes. In fact, I have a bucket list of the restaurants I like to try around the world, and that list is growing longer every year. Uh, I have, of course, managed to cross some spots of that list, but someday I really want to travel the globe searching only for the finest foods and, and over-the-top culinary experiences. I should also note that I don't have a single favorite cuisine. I, of course, love Turkish food, or Anatolian food, that's how I like to call it, because it is a very diverse cuisine. But when it comes to the freshness of the products, uh, no other cuisine can beat Italian cuisine. I also really like Mexican food and Japanese food because in their food much is about their indigenous culture and traditions. As regards the question, uh, I think I have had the best Turkish food outside Turkey in Berlin, Germany, where I currently live. Uh, Turkish people in Berlin are the largest community outside Turkey, so it is not surprising that there is an amazing amount of quality Turkish restaurants here. Uh, there is absolutely something for everybody. If you want to have small takeaways like doner and kebab, you will have plenty of options. You can also find some really uh, fancy high-end restaurants that really stick to traditions. And what is the best Turkish food? Uh, again, the word best is so subjective, but my preferred Turkish food is all kinds of stuffed dishes. I particularly like sarma from my hometown, Izmir. 
that is a dish of cooked grape wine leaves wrapped around a variety of fillings like rice and mincemeat. Right, so let me finish up with some more short questions. And here the first one is, what was the most significant conference that you have been to? I think it was a, an invited talk where I presented uh, one of my articles at Gothenburg University when I was working as a visiting fellow at Uppsala University. And uh, it was, as I said, it was an invited talk. And um, you already feel like special. You're, you're, you know, feeling that your 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 research is already having an impact on other people. And I was invited to to that talk to give that talk as soon as you know my uh, article was published, and which was another you know good thing for me. And and I received such a good, have such a great feedback on a, on a published article. And people were so attentive and asked many questions. I felt like I was the star in that room. Wonderful. So that was a pretty great experience for me. All right. Uh, I've already learned from our talk that you've received a few scholarships or grants. Which one you think was hardest to get? The the fellowship that I got uh, in in Sweden. I mean, the the application was so difficult. In fact. It was like around a hundred page long application. Wow. So I had to spend quite quite some time in order to prepare that application. I think it was it was hard, but eventually worked out fine. So he did well despite the fact that it was a bit difficult. Okay. And then what do you consider to be your most important contribution to your field? Okay. Uh, <laughs> Okay, I mean, again, I don't want to, you know, overstate what, what I've accomplished. But I think my, my PhD will be uh, the first in that examination of Turkey's emergency rule. I mean, the, the selection of case study is, is quite important because, as, as you would remember, in the aftermath of the attempted coup, Turkey declared a state of emergency. But that wasn't the, the, the first time that t- Turkey declared an emergency. Turkey has a rich experience when it comes to uh, exceptional regimes in, in various forms, be it martial law or state of emergency. And, and back in 2016, the number of state derogations from human rights instruments were at all-time high. So it was uh, the Turkey was not the only country utilizing the, the power to derogate, but also, you know, in the aftermath of uh, the Paris attacks, France declared state of emergency, Ukraine declared state of emergency, and, and again, it was, I mean, it didn't proceed, but UK was planning to derogate in response to its armed conflict in, in Afghanistan. So the, the, the number of state derogations were, were uh, really high back in 2016. And I chose the Turkish case study. Uh, of course, there is this methodological reasons for that because I'm a Turkish citizen and I can read the you know primary sources in Turkish. But also, you know, in, ter- in view of the recent um, emergency practices, Turkish uh, case stands out uh, stands out as the most extreme case study. And my PhD will be uh, the, the first in that examination of, of that period. So I think it might be a contribution to the field. There you go. Definitely sounds like one. Maybe, maybe, maybe one last thing, because by their nature, these cases are exceptional. 
So when, for example, when France declares state of emergency, it's not the same thing as the Turkish Turkish case because they have different uh, historical backgrounds when it comes to state of emergencies, different state traditions, and this kind of uh, in that case studies, I think that's all uh, was lacking in the literature. So that is one of the, you know, important contributions that my PhD will have. Very interesting. All right. Who has impressed you most with what they have accomplished? Uh, I think I would say Franz Kafka, because I mean, I mean, he has many amazing novels, but I particularly enjoyed the trial uh, because it it explains a lot in terms of what's going on in Turkey or in authoritarian regimes. I mean, I'm sure you read that novel, but I I. I was when I was reading it at high school, I remember being uh, completely baffled by you know how his his fictional character Joseph K gets arrested, how he gets arrested with with no evidence and no explanation, how he was trapped in the hands of powerful yet yet almost invisible courts. And and uh, this is important because Turkey had such a it'll be a cliche about Turkey as such a Kafka esque two year uh, period in the aftermath of the you know attempted coup. I'm a fan of incorporating l- literature into my writings. Franz Kafka and, and his trial uh, has been a, a point of uh, reference for me, and I also I would say George Orwell. You know, he, he reading his novel 1984 has been uh, not just a good read, but but uh, has helped you know shaping my thoughts when it comes to you know government overreach, you know this mass surveillance and and uh, repression in 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 societies. And uh, one thing I, I like about that book was you know uh, the the book was on you know truth uh, uh, tr- truth and facts. In in authoritarian regime, in in totalitarian regimes, and that exactly applies to the uh, to the current state of Turkey. Not just Turkey, but uh, also you know the, the the I mean especially when you take a look at the uh, governmental uh, measures uh, in the time of COVID, you could see that you know COVID nineteen is becoming a field in which uh, the executives are having you know increasingly. Uh, more powers, uh, I think these kind of literary examples uh, say a lot, explain a lot in terms, you know, and, and it could help a lot uh, about how we, you know, ought to understand these, these overreach and executive powers. It's interesting, but maybe also a bit unfortunate that these older classical works are still relevant mm-hmm. to today's examples. I think that's why those brilliant people wrote those books in the first place. And that is the, the, the for me, that is the definition of societal impact. Right. All right. Thank you very much for that. But then we get to the last question. And that is, how do you relax after a hard day of work? Okay. As I said, uh, I'm finalizing my PhD. So these months have been particularly busy for me. And, and even as I, you know, finish one thing, I have to get back to another, you know, item on my agenda, right? So I usually, uh, after finishing a work, I usually, you know, watch a movie with my wife. 
Uh, in fact, we recently watching this TV series. It's called Space Force. I'm watching uh, that right the, now with my partner. Really? I love it. Really? Uh, uh, did, did you like it or? I do. I do like it a lot. It's kind of cute and it's funny. It's it's good. I like it. it and, and I'm I'm a huge fan of Steve Carell. Right. Really, I really enjoyed his work in The Office. It is one of my you know favorite TV series till this day. And, uh, and I mean, we, we, these days we we watch that show. Very nice. And it's short. It's like only half an hour episode, so it's too. Check the the uh, reviews on that TV series, and people are a bit you know uh, harshly criticizing it because they say that the the, the quality is not that good, but I, I really like the idea of it. So it's it's I mean it's like Office. It's it's a workplace uh, TV show uh, that provides an in depth. Uh, like my page an in-depth examination of the people there it, 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 the the i mean how of course it's 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 a some sort of a comical comedy right. uh, i would say but i mean it, it's a great show it also has a lot of hints right it has a lot of hints to hmm. anything that's going on in our society at the moment and that makes it more funny even though maybe it's not yeah. necessarily yeah. funny but yeah. just the way they put it it is yeah yeah, yeah. Nice. So another thing that we have in common. <laughs> yeah, space wars. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Emre, and also for sharing your interesting journey. And also a thank you to our audience. Keep coming back on Thursday for new episodes. And I also wanted to mention that I actually have a BA in Middle Eastern Studies from Netherlands, where I'm originally from, which is why I can pronounce the, the Flemish accent. <laughs> Yeah, I, I know that you're half Dutch, right? That's right. Um, and there, during my BA, I interned in this place called the Turkey Institute. Uh, and there I wrote about the political, economic and cultural developments for a Dutch audience of what was happening in Turkey. And that was in, um, I think it was 2015, right when the elections, when the HDP came into the parliament and then the elections were annulled and they did them again over summer. Yeah, 7, 7 June 2015 elections. Right. So it was a very interesting time for me, maybe one of the internships where I've learned, learned most about a country in the Middle East. Um, and since then, so much has changed, because then we had the re-elections, and then there was the coup that you're researching now. And so much has changed, so I can't wait for your all your articles to be published so I can read them. 